Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Spiritual Unity Radio Network, a station dedicated to the concept that all manifestations of the divine are equally valid. Join Reverend Terry Power HP, Robin McKean, and all the hosts for programming covering a wide range of spiritual topics, right here on Blog Talk Radio. Invictus and Athena Victory celebrates the mythic impulses of ancient Greece and Rome, and they invite you to celebrate with them. Welcome to Voice of Olympus. Greetings and welcome to Voice of Olympus. I am your producer, Hercules Invictus, and I am greatly honored to announce the Ember Dragon podcast hosted by Linda Marciniak. Greetings and welcome, Linda. Hail, hail to you. How are you, Hercules? I'm doing incredibly awesome. How are you? I'm doing well, thanks. Merry I'm glad Christmas to hear Eve it. to you. And to you as well. Um, and uh, I'm looking forward to your conversation with Oberon Zell. Well, I'm here. <laughs> Greetings and welcome. Greetings. Greetings, Oberon. Hey. How are you? Greetings so, to you, Linda uh, Hercules. All right. <laughs> so without further ado, uh, greetings to all of you magical folks that are tuning in tonight. I'm so excited. My guest is Oberon Zell. Um For those of you who tuned in uh, for the Salon special, Oberon was one of um, three guests that I had on my show. And from that time to this, I have really just um, been reading his amazing uh, life story, The Wizard and the Witch. So I want to just tell you a little bit about Oberon just to get us going. And um, then I'm sure the conversation is just going to fly. So Oberon Zell is a renowned wizard and elder in the worldwide magical community. In 1967, he was the first to apply the term pagan to the newly emerging nature religions of the 60s. Oberon founded the first legal pagan church, which is known as Church of All Worlds, www.caw.org. 
And through his publication of Green Egg Magazine from 1968 to present, Oberon was instrumental in the coalescence of the modern pagan movement. In 1970, he had a profound vision of the living earth, which he published as the earliest version of the Gaia Thesis. And in the 80s, Oberon and his life mate, Morning Glory, resurrected authentic living unicorns and led a diving expedition to New Guinea to solve the mystery of the mermaids, which I have to tell you, I I found absolutely fascinating reading through that that section in the book. Uh, In 1990, uh, Morning Glory coined the term polyamore and launched another significant movement. Oberon creates altar figures and jewelry of gods and goddesses. And if you look on uh, the Amber Dragon website, I mean, uh, Facebook page, you will see a a beautiful picture of um, his Gaia figure. She is now on our altar uh, for the Fellowship of the Dragon Moon. So he is also the author of Grimoire for the Apprentice Wizard, The Wizard and the Witch, and other books. And he's the founder and headmaster of the online Gray School of Wizardry at uh, grayschool.com. He's a world traveler to mystic sites, and uh, recently he took a month-long journey to Guatemala from July uh, to August of this year, presenting workshops on quantum consciousness and participating in Mayan ceremonies. And currently he's living in Salem, which is where we uh, met in October, And he is basically on an indefinite walkabout, driving around the country to meet with people. So I thank you so much, Oberon, for taking time from your busy schedule to join us tonight on the the show. My pleasure, Linda. Glad to be here. Nice to talk to you again. Yeah. So... um, So, you know, wow, you know, like, where do you start? I mean, what... What do you think really was your your first your first clear vision or insight that told you that this is the path that you were going to go on? <laughs> well, you know, I guess that I get asked that question a lot, um, and I really have to say that it began when I was a child, and my first reading was children's versions of the Greek myths, and I was just totally captivated by the whole. Um, idea of the ancient lore and the and the gods and goddesses and the stories and tales of that just fascinated me. And I went into other mythology and fairy tales and and um, fantasy and science fiction. And, um, and I've just always had a rich life in the mythic realm. And I guess it just continued going. The neat thing was discovering that um, uh, there were other people too, because as uh, in my younger life, life, I really felt I was an isolated changeling all by myself. I used to go out in the backyard with a flashlight to try to signal the flying saucers to come back and take me home. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, it's so funny that you would say that because, you know, you've done such a tremendous, tremendous job of opening the pathway for so many people. And, um, you know, and yet I think everybody who walks this path at some point or another shares that, shares that, that thought that, you know, they're kind of, you know, maybe odd man out a little bit and not really seeing the world through the shared vision of, you know, of the, the folks that are their contemporaries. And, uh, you know, in reading the book, it, it really just, 
becomes quite clear that um, today we would refer to you probably as an indigo child. I don't know if you're (laughs) – I'm familiar. you're familiar. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there have been terms used over the years. Yeah. At one point we thought of ourselves as mutants. Yeah. Well, but you landed here with a mission, it seems like, and and through it all, there's there's that voice of confidence that comes through. So I, I find it fascinating. So so tell us a little bit about your journey and you know some of the high points for you now that you're kind of looking back and and seeing all that all that road that you've traveled. Well, it's been quite a journey. I mean, what a long, strange trip it's been at all of that, you know. Uh, uh, to such a great extent, uh, it was a journey initially to just simply find my people. And, it was, um, and when I started doing that, it was very exciting to be able to find that I was not alone and there were others. And it was quite a celebration each time new people came in. There was... Um, something that Margot Adler said in Drawing Down the Moon that has been so true is that people come into paganism not by getting a conversion generally, but by simply finding out that there are other people who think the way they do. And the first thing that people usually say when they find the community is they say, I feel like I've come home. And then we get to say those beautiful words, welcome home. And now every pagan festival site and gathering always has a big sign over the entrance that says, welcome home. And so a great part of my journey has been that. And the fascinating thing is, is over the years as I've traveled more and more widely, and I've been to lots of places all over around the world, you know. I'm, uh, I've been to Australia a number of times and on all over Europe and Peru and, and uh, uh, well, Guatemala and Mexico and places like that. And um, each time I go somewhere, I find that there are other people that I feel right at home. I get welcomed in. I come here. I am in Salem now, and where I had visited many times in October, being brought out here for some event, always at Samhain, year many years over the time. But I've never been here at any other time. I was kind of wondering, in fact, whether Salem even exists after <laughs> Samhain. I was thinking maybe it just disappears into the mist like Brigadoon, you know. I was just going to say, just like Brigadoon. <laughs> Right. So how are so how are you finding how are you finding Salem now at this at this time of year? Well, it's 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 still wonderful. Uh, we still have enough customers to keep the store going. I'm I'm working out of uh, uh, Gypsy Ravish's store, New Aeon on Pickering Wharf. Uh, you know, she's had the store there for 22 years. It's quite amazing, and I've been working with her on developing this amazing cosmic temple in the back of the store that I really want to put on the map for people to visit on pilgrimage. It's, it's an incredible, amazing place. It's like if you go to, to show Stonehenge or Chartres Cathedral or some mystical, magical places, this ought to be on the map with those kind of places because it's, it's quite amazing. So uh, we've been working out uh, ways to present it uh, in an effective presentation for people and to do ritual stuff and, um, I've been adding a little bit of artwork to the incredible art that's already there. And it's, it's, it's really pretty neat. But I'm getting ready to go off uh, in January for, for the month and do some more traveling down in uh, the south area. I've uh, going to be visiting with Donna, who I've traveled many places with for, uh, for a few weeks down there, and do a gig in 
New Orleans at the Hex uh, place down there and just hang out with friends. That's the wonderful thing about being on the road like this is I get to actually hang out with my friends instead of just show up at a festival or an event and do my stuff and meet with people and then go away again. You know, I'm now getting to actually visit and hang out in homes and spend time and have them show me around and stuff. It's, it's wonderful. So it's a whole new phase of my life that's very different from the life before, which is in the book where I was always partnered with Morning Glory. And uh, so now I'm not partnered. And for this interval that I'm not, however long that may be, and I'm certainly you know, wide open to to looking for someone who might fill that place in my life because I'm not really uh, all about being alone, you know. I'm, I'm about being a, a partner. But here it is, and here I am, and it's a great adventure, and uh, it continues. So are, have you been writing at all? Anything new coming out? Well, I've been keeping up a journal fairly regularly of my travels, which have quite extensive actually i've been posting it um, my walkabout journal on facebook and stuff um and i suppose a book can come out of that at some point because i've uh i've done a lot of writing there's a book that i've got at the publishers right now that i have to get back to working on some final editing for it's on death uh llewellyn has it and um but they wanted lots of changes and they wanted to cut the original manuscript in half so it's a bit of a struggle to <laughs> to get back to doing that. I've got uh, a lot of work to do on it, but yeah. I will I will get to that. So, Beyond that, I've got a whole lot of books uh, that are sort of mostly written or partly written or noted and stuff, and I've got enough to keep me busy for many years to come. So now I I know that because I, I follow you on Facebook, and I know that there was a little struggle there with the with the friend count, but. The, the walkabout Facebook page, are people able to access that so they can kind of follow along with you? Well, yeah. Um, the journal entries are being posted on, um, on my personal site as well, uh, on oberonzell.com, so people can check that out. And and um, that's probably the best way to see the whole thing all together in one place because posting them periodically on my regular Facebook page, they get kind of lost in subsequent posts. Mm. So I, I'd like to kind of take you through um, some of the some of the sections of the book that that I found to be somewhat compelling. And um, you know, I, you reference uh, a book by Robert Heinlein called uh, "A Stranger in a Strange Land." And you know, I'm one of these readers where if I get into a book and I really kind of resonate with it, um, I will pick up a book that's referenced either in the bibliography or within the the text of that book. So I have gone down Mm -hmm. to um, Broad Street Books, which is an amazing used bookstore in Branchville, uh, New Jersey. If you ever do get down this way, you have to stop in. But um, I did go down there and picked up a copy of Stranger in a Strange Land. And it, it obviously touched you in a very, very um, deep way and impacted your life. Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, sure. be happy to. I'm, I hope the edition you picked up was the original um, 1961 edition. Um, there's a second edition that was put out that 
was really unfortunate. I'm, I'm really quite bummed about it. It was put up, um, I think, 20 years later. Or, no, it must have been more than that. It must have been much more than that. Um, but, but it was put up by uh, uh, Mr. Heinlein's widow, Virginia, and it claimed to be the original um, unexpurgated you know, version and stuff, and it's not. It was simply the unedited manuscript, and um, it's really not nearly as good. It's about a third additional material, but it's all the stuff that Heinlein edited out of the original and little things that didn't really go anywhere and little side plots and stuff like that. Um, and the bummer about it is that when he was doing the editing for the original manuscript, which he had been working on for many years, um, he came up with a brilliant insight that was the transformative element of the entire book. And that was um, the definition of love as that condition in which another person's happiness is essential to your own. And from that point and from that premise, a whole different perspective on relationships is developed. It's just that was what was transformative about the book. But in the original manuscript that was unedited that uh, Virginia put out, which has now become the one, since I believe once you put that out, the earlier first editions all have ceased being available, that isn't in there. It is just this long, rambling discussion about, you know, love and jealousy and stuff, but it, it doesn't really reach any resolution, which is a shame because that was sort of what made the book important. That book influenced a generation. It, um, it really shaped the 60s to a great extent. There were several key events that came at the beginning of the 60s. The invention of the pill, <laughs> that was a big one, and Stranger in a Strange Land, and... Uh, Transpersonal psychology and, um, and a number, a few things, but but that one was essential. That was the kind of the Bible of that generation, in a sense, that put it all together. And it profoundly influenced me enough to um, take some of the ideas in the book and try to bring them forth in real life, which we did successfully. Now, are you still are, are you still actively involved with the folk that um, you shared water with at the very beginning of all this? I mean, where where has that community gone at this point? Those that, well, that remain, obviously. Well, many yeah, many of them are dead now. Unfortunately, my first water brother Lance died of cancer in uh, 2010, and Morning Glory died a few years ago almost five years ago, I was also of cancer. and um, But there, the few survivors, we're still in touch with each other. Um, there's uh, several good folks still in St. Louis that I visited on my travels. It's, again, the nice thing about being on the road like this is I get to visit with folks. And so we hung out. It was really nice. Uh, Don Wildgrubby and Carolyn Whitehorn and Thomas Coleman and most of the other people from that era, though, from the old St. Louis group are dead. I'm getting to be sort of the last one standing, you know, from those early days. Uh, there just aren't hardly anybody left from the early 60s who were part of all this stuff. So it's kind of strange, really, you know. Yeah, I'm sure it must be. You know, you were you were definitely the, the leader of that whole movement. And so, and from that really came the defining of your of yourself publicly as a as a pagan which as you i'm sure are aware just blew the doors open for generations like mine you know to come through and have 
so much access to so much information, you know, whereas you and, you know, and the groups that you were involved with are really the creators of all that. I mean, one of the, one of the really fascinating things for, for me as I was reading um, the book was the, the, the close personal relationships that you had with so many of the folks that are now, you know, um, the content experts for things like the chakra system and, um, mm-hmm. you know, the, the sociological evolution of, you know, witchcraft in, in the United States. And, and the fact that, you know, you just, these, these folks were, you know, they were your soulmates and your bunk mates and, you know, just kind of hanging out with these folks. It just, it's just so wild for someone, you know, who's just read their stuff to, to actually, you know, see that, that, you know, you were influencing them as well. So could you talk a little bit about, you know, all of that and, you know, do you see it the same way? I'm sure a lot of people must say just what I said to you. Do you see it the same way or is your perception of all this different? Well, I, I think I probably do see it much the same way. You know, we, we started off, there was just a very small number of us initially and we all knew each other, and um, uh, many of us were inspired by uh, uh, visions of uh, intimacy, shall we say, that uh, brought us very closely together. And and we still have, I, I, I still have a whole uh, number of uh, of old lovers that I'm in touch with, and still share very fond communications and, and memories and, and occasional visits and such over the years. And we really thought, felt of ourselves that way, that we were just discovering here and there one or two people trying to assemble a family, reassemble a, a lost tribe. Um, there were so many stories that were that, that fed into this, many myths and legends and, and many science fiction stories. One of those was Zena Henderson's stories of the people that were um, – that were the basis of uh, the the Disney movie Escape to Lo- to Witch Mountain and stuff like that. But the stories were about uh, orphans from the sky, you know, of uh, uh, people fleeing a just a planet that was being destroyed and coming to Earth and getting scattered across the planet and trying to find each other, kind of stuff. So there was a great deal of sense of that. So when we would find someone that we felt this kinship with there was this wonderful sense of recognition and bonding and connections and we just fell into each other's lives and we you know worked together and and you know talked together late into the night you know and and uh, slept together and had wonderful uh, communion and rituals and developed all this stuff it was it was very inspirational it's uh, it was one of those mythic eras the, the 60s really uh it was it was like Paris in the twenties or the, um, uh, the transcendental movement in the eighteen forties. It was one of those kind of things. In fact, I I came to a realization that these kind of cycles of cultural renaissance occur like clockwork every sixty years. You know, mm-hmm. so as I started thinking about some of the others and researching my history, earliest one that I've traced was the Italian Renaissance in the 1480s with um, Leonardo da Vinci and all the excitement that was around that. And then 60 years later was the Age of Exploration in the 1540s with, with you know, commerce from all different countries that were being connected with, with the sailing around the world stuff. And then... Um, 
in the 1600s. It was the English Renaissance with Shakespeare and all that kind of neat stuff that happened around there. 1660s was the scientific revolution with Isaac Newton and, and the whole advances in, well, every aspect of science and astronomy. Very visionary, very exciting. Let's see, that was the 1660s. So the um, 1720s was the Great Awakening in Europe that inspired Benjamin Franklin, who brought these ideas back to the Americas, which brings us to the 1780s and the French and American Revolution and the Age of Reason and all that excitement. And then the 1840s with the Transcendentalist Movement, the turn of the century with the Golden Dawn, the dawn of the magical era. Then, of course, the 1960s, the psychedelic 60s, and all of that, that brought forth all the movements that came out of that. Paganism, environmentalism, feminism, civil rights, uh, anti-war, so many things that came out of that period. And, of course, which means we're right around the corner um, for the next one in the 2020s. So I'm really pretty excited about that. <laughs> now, you, you obviously, you coined the, the, the phrase of, you know, the pagan community. Morning Glory herself was a witch. Yes. And defined her, herself as a witch. So at this point in your life, where where are you in that continuum? I mean, how do you how do you describe yourself now and, and how do you define yourself? Well, I think the only description that really works altogether encompasses all the different aspects of my life is wizard. Which mm. which is a nice one. I like that because it has great associations. And throughout all of history, there's a great continuity of wizards all the way back to um, to the most ancient of times. You know, we have we have all these wizards of history and myth, which are all interwoven. Um, and um, I like that. It, it works. It works. Uh, the philosophers of um, ancient Greece, the Magi that uh, showed up at the birth of Jesus, these are these are wizards, wise ones. The word means wise one. Uh, wizardry means mm. wisdom. The philosophy means love of wisdom. So when you talk about the philosophers, um, in the scientists used to be called natural philosophers, which brings it around to that again. So the concept of the wisdom teachings, the wisdom of the ages being on the path of, of wizardry is, suits me very well. My current position as the headmaster of a school of wizardry puts me right into that same position again. And the modern analog of wizards is professors. So, you know, that's kind of the way that all sure. works together. So I like that. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm also trained as a witch and initiated and welcome into mm -hmm. many circles. Uh, just over this holiday season, I've attended two uh, witchcraft coven meetings for the season for solstice, two different traditions, and a big pagan meeting with had a gathering of, with 100 people or so that, that was much broader, more like Church of All Worlds kind of stuff. And more to come. Um, it's it's an amazing, great time of the year to be getting together with everybody in celebration. So, you know, and, and truly, you know, in the classic, you know, concept of the wizard, you you create things out of out of virtual nothingness. You know, I, I mean, just everything you set your mind to, you seem to be able to manifest and bring into into you know reality even amongst you know even amongst the naysayers within your own close you know warm circle if you will you still manage to to 
to pull off some pretty amazing things. And, and I think one of them are the unicorns. And I, I just, you know, I really wish that, you know, and I rack my brains because when I was young, I mean, we, we went to Ringling Brothers and I'm trying to, I'm trying to think, you know, was, were the unicorns in Ringling Brothers circuits when I was there as a kid? And for the life of me, I really, you know, I can't remember that, but could you talk to us about the unicorns? I think it's absolutely fantastic. And I know there's a few of my um, Fellowship of the Dragon Moon um, members that are listening today and absolutely adore unicorns. So I, I think it's a great story. Well, all right. Well, they were with the circus. Um, we had a four-year exhibition from 1985 to 1989. So if you went, attended the circus in that period... I can't imagine that you wouldn't have noticed. It was a big, huge deal. Yeah, no. It was all over the place. Yeah, yeah. So you must have I, I was definitely that. older. Yeah, I was definitely yeah. older by then. But okay. So, so where did that come from? The you know the unicorns. It's, it's fascinating to me that you were able to do what you did. Well, it's quite a story, of course. Um, you know, I, I've I've never really considered anything to exactly to be impossible. If I, I'm sitting here talking on something that was. Uh, invented as a fantasy in a science fiction TV show f- over 50 years ago. So come on, you know. I feel right, like, right, right. Um, so uh, it really, if we can imagine something um, and believe in it enough to just keep doing it, well, almost anything can be done, you know, uh, except perhaps striking a match on a wet bar of soap underwater. Wow. But other than that, um, you know, there's not a whole lot that's not possible and so many new things are coming. It's like one thing leads to the next, to the next, to the next. So I always look at things from that perspective. What would it take to make this possible? That's kind of the way I look at it. And, you know, people talk about this thinking outside the box stuff. But for me, it's always been box. There's a box. Right, <laughs> right. I, I, I've never even considered that. I, my, my thinking has simply never addressed that because I've grown up on science fiction and fantasy and mythology. And, yeah. You know, I just don't have a notion of things being impossible. So the unicorn adventure began um, because when uh, Morning Glory and I were both always fascinated in our lives with mythical beasties and, well, and many things. When we got together, we discovered that that our entire lives and everything we were into and loved and cared about and, and the books we've read and the movies inspired us were all the same. You know, it was like we were somehow twin souls. Uh, brought mm. up in different places, but we shared it. When we met, we were reading the same book, the same novel at the same time. When we actually met, it was bizarre. It was it was like that. Our whole life was like that. So one of those things with mystical beasties, and uh, we were sitting together with a bunch of friends, and we got talking about that. And around about that time, the uh, book, the last unicorn, had come out, and that was pretty popular. And we thought that was pretty cool. Um, the, the movie followed that, which was also really cool. And we thought, wouldn't it be great to write a book that was about the true stories behind the myths? You know, how, you know what are they based on? Because all these stories have a, a basis, a foundation somewhere. And that's what's always fascinated me. Where do these things come from? What is the basis? What is the foundation? I, I've never really thought that people just make stuff up, stuff up out of whole cloth. You know, there's this idea that, well, there had to have been something you know, that, that if you explore it deep enough, you find out, well, there's this is a story about something. But the thing, what is it about? That's the interesting part of it to me. So we thought we would write a book. And about that, 
around then, shortly after that, we um, hit the road. We uh, quit my job at the age of 33, trying to follow the mythic 33-year cycle, and bought an old school bus and spent uh, the winter fixing it up and making it into an RV kind of a thing with my own design. And then we hit the road in the summer of... um, of 1976 it was and started traveling around the country and uh, and this was of course well before the internet and Google and Wikipedia and all this stuff so if you wanted information you had to go to libraries and the best ones were at universities so we traveled around and we'd stop somewhere and we'd go to the local university and research whatever books they had in their libraries on mythical beasties and and uh, Xerox pictures and copy down information and start building up files of different kinds of things. And in the process of all this, uh, when we were in Eugene, Oregon, at the University of uh, of Oregon, up there, uh, uh, now Lane Community College it was actually, um, we discovered the secret of the unicorn. And that was uh, that was absolutely mind-blowing because when we started off, we just assumed like almost everybody does that somehow unicorns were based on rhinoceroses, which is kind of odd, really, because they don't look much like rhinoceroses. Um, but that was the idea because rhinoceros has a single horn. Well, they don't actually they have two, but right. I don't know. But that, that had been what everybody was going right. by, you know, rhinoceroses. So we just figured, okay. But as we did more research, you know, the images and the pictures and the descriptions and the stories and the background information, and then we came upon anthropological stuff and... Uh, and tribes and peoples and practices, and we came to the realization that these were actually real animals that were modified by an art form that was a secret, carefully guarded um, process. Uh, and the purpose initially was to produce animals that would be invincible protectors of the herd against predators, because they are. They're, they're actually incredibly dangerous uh, and that was the initial purpose, but you can only have one in the in the herd, so it kind of narrowed it down a little bit because they will fight with each other and they will kill each other because they, that's what they do. Um, so in that process, we came upon the research of a, a veterinary surgeon uh, at the Maine Research Library in Maine in the 1930s who had been doing research in horn development and... Um, he just he made a profound discovery that what everybody thought about horn development was completely wrong, and um, that horns do not, in fact, just sort of grow spontaneously out of the skull, that they are stimulated to their growth by the excretion of enzymes from nodes that are embedded in the skin uh, before the animal is born, and uh, and that within oh within the first day or so after birth. These nodes come alive, activate, and secrete enzymes that go down into the tissue beneath them, and that causes the horns to develop. So he got this bright idea, because the skin on the forehead is loose until the horn develops, just like it is on our foreheads. You can kind of wiggle around. That if he okay. could shift the positions of these so that the two nodes were in contact with each other, all of the enzymes would go down into a single spot which would, of course, be right in the center of the third eye spot. And he did this, and a single horn developed, and he went, voila, there's the secret of the unicorn. But he did more than that. The, the, 
his description of the animal itself was amazing that it grew to be big and powerful and intelligent and and uh, just an always this amazing fantastic creature that scarcely looked like the parent stock and he worked with um, uh, a bull a, a, a Ayrshire bull calf which was authentic in the sense that the first unicorns we have record of go back 4,000 years or so are in fact taurine unicorns they're commonly depicted in the bas-reliefs of the Harappan and Persian civilizations and such as battling lions that appears to be what they were for but that, then the secret was lost and then rediscovered again. And over the ages, many different species formed the parent stock in different parts of the world. And there were unicorns that appeared in China that were from deer and in India from antelope in Egypt. And um, in Greece, the, one of the most significant things that gave us the entire golden age of Greece was the, caused by a unicorn, uh, a ram, an Aryan unicorn. It was brought to the coronation of Pericles when he took the throne of Athens. And that was considered to be such a symbolic thing that all of the warring city-states of Greece laid down their arms and united together under the herald of the unicorn. And that era of uh, the reign of Pericles was the golden age of Greece, from which we have all the, the plays and the philosophers and the architecture and the art, everything, all by a unicorn. And, of course, the ones that are most famous to us are from the unicorn tapestries from the Renaissance, uh, from the basically mainly from the English Renaissance period, about 1600. And we have two big sets of those uh, the, in Paris and in New York. And they're life-size, very detailed life-size, and they're very authentic. And these are the ones that are the classic image, you know, the little... The, the, the small white animals with the flowing manes and the cloven hooves and the bearded chin right, and the simple right. horn. And we set out to reproduce that. We said, that's what we have to do. So we spent some time once we figured it out. And we we, we um, had to, to go around to lots and lots of different farms and find the right stock and find a place to do it. It was a big thing that occupied our life in the uh, the late 70s. And then in 1980, in the spring of 1980, our first unicorns were born, and it was amazing. It was it was huge. It was incredible. They were in yeah. every newspaper and TV show and um, magazines and books, and it exploded. And eventually, with the circus, made it hugely famous. But the amazing thing, Linda, is that these 30 some years later, the world has completely forgotten. You know, it's like if you talk really? to people about unicorns or mention unicorns, they, oh, that's just a fantasy, no such thing. Well, <laughs> is, and you know, wow. I think, and, and Oberon, to be honest with you, when I was reading the book, I, you know, I thought to myself, were these, they, they were actual real unicorns? And I, I thought that maybe they were some kind of, because uh, I, I know that you sculpt and, and uh, you make absolutely beautiful statuary, and I thought, well, you know, maybe they were creating something that was, you know, a, a unicorn that was not really, you know, alive. And then as I was reading the, the <laughs> chapter, and and I thought, oh my goodness, and I'm looking to see, what, what did did you go to med school? Like, how in the world, you know, did you did you pull this off? And and it just it seems to be that that. You know, you you seem to to be just a very single-minded 
individual that, that has this unique ability to remain focused on your vision of where you're heading, even in the crowd. And, and certainly, you always, you always draw a crowd. You always have people <laughs> around you. Um, you know, and, and I can't imagine that that's changed much, um, you know, in the last few years. But, I mean, all these people around you, do, do you actually, do you hear them as just white sound? Because they don't really seem to affect, you know, your vision of where you're going. Even, you know, and when you read the book, I, what I love about it is the candor that everybody, you know, just speaks so openly about um, the different um, vignettes and, and what they're addressing. And even Morning Glory herself, you know, um, speaking, you know, about her own, you know, personal thoughts on some of these adventures that, you know, you were coming up with. And yet it didn't really seem to make a difference. You, you still seemed to persevere. And in the end, um, you had more successes than failures, I would say. Well, um, apparently, yeah. Uh, you know, uh, you're not going to have any successes or failures, I guess, if you don't um, uh, go for it, if you don't try for it. And, you know, a, a person's reach must exceed their grasp. But I, I think that a number of, a fairly high percentage of my, you know, crazy crackpot schemes have actually worked out yeah. quite well. I mean, you know, I'm rather pleased with that. Uh, some things haven't so much, or some things I just haven't had enough attention or time to really fully, fully put into, which they probably would have more. You know, if I'd had time and energy for it, I would have started the gray school probably, you know, decades earlier, but they just, you know, I was so fully occupied with other things. So there are times when things have been neglected. I didn't write my first book until I was in my 60s because I was so busy doing mm. other stuff. But I did publish a very successful magazine and, and the church and uh, several movements and, and you know, lots of travels and homesteaded, you know, in the hippie community, which is certainly one of my lifelong fantasies. So, yeah, uh, by and large, my fantasies have done pretty well coming true. And folks have been gathered around that shared them. But um, it hasn't exactly been like I've become famous in the mundane world, you know, I mean. You know, nobody knows who I am out there. I can walk down the street and, you know, I don't get recognized, well, yeah. you know, but it's okay, you know, and I don't expect to. So it really hasn't been that kind of an experience. Um, but it does seem that if I have an idea for something that I really feel I can do, I, I generally can. And if people want to, you know, get excited and want to be a part of it, then we do it together. But I've done pretty much things together. It's not that like I've done them all by myself. That's why when we were, the idea came up for the book, people have been telling me for years I should write my biography. You know, I said, oh, you got to write your life story. And I always used to laugh and say, well, if I did, it would have to be published as science fiction or something. <sighs> so, you know, but then uh, John Sulak, who had been following me around for many years, uh, wanting to do this, uh, really convinced me uh, that we really had to do this together. So I said, okay, how about this? I, there's no way to just tell the story from one person's perspective. I just can't tell my story because it's not my story. It's our story. Right. So I said, here's a whole bunch of people that I've been involved with over the years. Here's my parents and my brother and sister and Morning Glory and her family 
and our friends and people going all the way back to the very beginning. And here's their contact because I'm still in contact with all these people. I'm still in contact with people for 50 years and stuff. Um, so talk to them and see what they have to say and get their opinions and get their thoughts and memories and weave it all together. And he did a brilliant job of that. He spent I don't know how many hours of interviews and transcribed them all for probably thousands of pages of transcriptions. And then he went through and sorted them and put them together so that the entire book flows like a conversation around the campfire, which I think is really amazing. Well, and it's very refreshing, too, because you, you know, your life really is about that whole shared community experience. You, you really did walk the walk and not just talk the talk. I mean, you are a living, breathing example of everything that you talk about. And so to have the book um, in that format, it's just it's just more authentic that way because, you know, it, there were so many people and are so many people woven into this journey with you. Um, and to hear their their perspectives and going back and forth, it really does, you know, you feel like you're sitting in a very big living room and people are just on couches everywhere just sharing their, you know, their piece of, of the Oberon puzzle, you know, at any one time. And, um, so it really is it's a very pleasant read. It's a nice read, and it's, it, it does give you a very um, comprehensive view of your life um, and your life together with Morning Glory. And, um, you know, so I, I, think it, I think it does honor what you were hoping it was going to do. Well, thank you, Linda. That's, I, I'm glad, to, you know, this is what people say. I get that same kind of thing from folks, and that makes you feel really good because that was what we wanted to do. We wanted to create that kind of a shared story experience that we were all in this together and, uh, you know, and everybody had a part of it. And, of course, in many cases, some of those things were so outrageous that if I just said them all by myself, people wouldn't believe it. So it was kind of necessary to have people say, yeah, that really <laughs> happened. You know? Yeah. Uh, yeah, like like the whole mermaid thing is it's just pretty wild and and the idea that you know especially then because it's you know travel wasn't even as easy as it is today to just get these whole caravans of people not just the concept up off the ground but that you would get all these people to kind of travel on these journeys with you um, you know and and the mermaid one is is an excellent example of that you know like you're just you're literally going into these these ancient tribes and you're, you know, learning to communicate with them literally in the moment that you land and mm -hmm. make sense and, and establish enough rapport and trust with these folks that they would share their secrets with you. And it's certainly not an easy thing to do. Well, yeah, well, we, uh, I guess not. You know, I, I never really thought about that way. We just did it. <laughs> you know? yeah, yeah. Well, well, for example, to establishing the rapport, we, uh, Morning Glory came up with a bright idea of bringing along a bunch of those sticky gold stars that you use for, you know, uh, uh, putting them on papers in school and stuff. Right, And right. she would show up in the village, and there would be all these little kids would come running around, and she would... Uh, she would have a gold star on her head, and the kids would say, what's that? And he said, well, this is a gold star. This is what she gives to somebody who's been really good. And they'd say, oh, can I have one too? And then she'd ask their mother, has, 
has your kid been really good? So, oh, yes, he's very good. So, give him a gold star. So, all the kids are running around with gold stars on the foreheads, you know. And it was delightful. And then, then we took a whole bunch of Frisbees, little cheap little Frisbees, and we'd get, uh, we'd come out and we'd be hanging out there, and a couple of us would get at the opposite ends of the village center area and start tossing the Frisbee. And before long, there'd be a whole crowd of people around just itching to get a hold of that Frisbee. And then we'd toss it to them. And they'd start tossing it back and forth. Before then, the whole village would be tossing Frisbees and laughing and having a wonderful time. And that's kind of the way we did things, you know. Yeah, it's pretty, you know, it's just pretty wild. And, you know, I I don't know that a lot of people would be able to pull that off, um, and, and the fact that you did is amazing. So I, I'd like to talk a little bit about, um, you know, the the business venture of the statues and and hmm. the sculpting. Again, you know, you you saw something, you picked it up, you ran with it, and you turned it into, you know, um, a nice business. Now, are you still active doing that with the statues? Well, the business is still going strong, obviously. Um, right now, in fact, uh, you can find some of my stuff in regular commercial stores. So we've been picked up by by some big uh, distribution companies, and I'm, it's it's getting kind of exciting. I mean, you know, like in you know Macy's and stuff like that, which is kind of neat to see my stuff. But of course, now so many people are making statues and figurines and jewelry. But my stuff is still holding strong. You know, it's still very popular. Um, I get my royalties from that. That's kind of my major income is royalties from my books and my statues, my jewelry. Um, that's kind of what supports me mostly, you know. And um, so, but I haven't been able to do much new stuff in a long time because I haven't had a studio since. Uh, Morning Glory died, and our, our our family got dispersed, and I um, haven't had a home exactly, either a studio. So I really haven't done any new designs in quite a while. But my other, my the ones I've got are good and doing well, and I'm, some of them had gone out of production over the years, so we're getting them back into production. So as far as most people are concerned, those are brand new because I did a lot. I was pretty prolific. I did dozens of. Uh, of statues and, and many, many jewelry designs. And, you know, we're getting them all out there. They Well, many of them are already, and more will be coming. Uh, it's very gratifying as I travel around to visit people, and everywhere I go, uh, there's my statues on their altars, you know, especially Gaia, of course. She's the most popular one. I have to have a few words with Disney about that because they appropriated her image for their movie, uh, Moana. So yeah, I, yeah, yeah. Right, I got to get. Um, I have to follow up on that. I just haven't had time. I just, I spent a considerable amount of time uh, in legal wrangling with MGM Studios over the use of my Astra Star Goddess design in their Handmaid's Tale TV series. And eventually, after a year of argument, uh, that was a successful thing, and I finally got uh, a licensing arrangement and appropriate royalties for that. So. Now I've got to turn my attention to Disney, which is going to be a little challenging because they get, they're big and they have lots of money. But hopefully they will see reason and all will be good. Well, and, and certainly your, your Gaia statue is absolutely, she's just breathtaking and the resemblance to Morning Glory is definitely, you know, pretty obvious when you look at that beautiful face. <laughs> well, that's so interesting because so many people say that who 
who knew morning glory, but the model actually for the face wasn't morning glory. It was a woman named Camilla Parham, who's well now Opiami, who I just saw the other night. She lives up here in New England and, and uh, she was just at the Yule Festival I was at. And she was the one who actually brought it to my attention that it was in the in the movie because she she wrote to me and said, oh, I saw this movie and there I was. So that's actually yeah. whose who's face it actually is. But there's a great deal of morning glory in it because the whole overall mm. presentation and the feel of it is so inspired by her because she was with me throughout the whole process. Although I drew from various models at various times uh, for different elements, the overall concept is certainly her. And you, you spent hours just drawing the the goddesses in a, was it a museum that you were in, an art studio, where you just oh. sat and, and... Yeah, that was um, at the uh, San Francisco um, Academy of Arts Museum, and they had an exhibit that was on tour of Ice Age art, and... Uh, they had lots of beautiful stuff. I mean, they had reproduced a lot of the cave paintings and great big, huge things around the walls and ceiling. But in the middle of the whole place was this small little case that had half a dozen of those little uh, Paleolithic goddess figures. And they were, uh, and so I, I just came and brought a little folding camp stool and my uh, tools and my Sculpey kit, and I just sat there for a whole weekend, for two whole days just sitting there sculpting them from looking at them in the case. That was quite an experience. It really was uh, because people came by and watched what I was doing and made comments and stuff. It was very interesting. But I figured that if, when I decided that I wanted to start doing sculpture, because I'd been doing drawing before that illustration, I, I kind of started off doing painting, and then I got into line illustration because all the paintings that I had done in high school and college got sold, and I didn't have many more. And I kind of did them because they were things I wanted to have, and then people bought them, and I didn't. And I didn't. I don't have copies or anything, uh, prints, none of that stuff. So from that point, I got into line drawing, which I could reproduce on a copy machine. And then I got to illustrating science fiction fanzines and uh, pulp zines and stuff, and fantasy stuff. So I did a lot of that uh, with line drawings, and I did a bunch of uh, goddesses. Um, line drawings and stuff, pen and ink. And then I decided I really wanted to do some sculpture. And I thought, of, well, if I'm going to do sculpture, I should start at the beginning. So I figured I would master doing the earliest known sculpture, which is the Paleolithic figures that go back to the Willendorf figure from 30,000 years ago. And so I did that. And I spent a lot of time just mastering the technique and, and reproducing, making absolutely perfect museum replicas of a number of those. I figured once I had that behind me, then I moved on up through the Neolithic and into Greek-style stuff. And mostly I did museum replicas of pieces that I thought were really cool but weren't available, like the Cretan snake goddess and stuff. Until eventually uh, I got to where I felt I was good enough at it that I could start doing my own designs. And so I started doing that. And then Morning Glory came, got involved with the whole process and said, oh, you got to do some gods too. You can't just do goddesses. Because, you know, us ladies would like to have some gods. I said, okay. So with her inspiration, I started doing some gods too. And I did Pan and Eros and Kurnunos and Odin and a few guys like that. And um, eventually, about 20 years ago, I figured I had finally gotten it together enough that I could do, I could create the vision that I'd had of, of Gaia in 1970. 
And I spent two years working on the Millennial Gaia, and it was just a complete obsession. I had her with me all the time. I'd have her at the dinner table. I'd have her in the in front of me when we were watching TV. And I just was always working on her all the time. And that's quite a story in itself. But finally, when she came out, she was perfect, and everybody has loved her. And she's been thousands and thousands of them have been produced out all over the world. So it's kind of neat. And then Disney picked well, her up. She, <laughs> yeah, you know, and, and it's funny that now you're saying that, and and you're right. I did not make that connection before um, with the Moana movie, but uh, good luck with that. My goodness. Yeah, well, I, I have a certain bit of trepidation. I'm just hoping that I'll reach somebody who will say, oh, my goodness, yes, you're absolutely yeah. right, because I've got lots and lots of photographs. I've got stills from the movie, and you can compare them with photos of the actual statue and the whole thing, and there's just no doubt about it that that's exactly where it is and, and, and where it comes from. And the statue. Still, we have one the at the statue. store. Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, I have one also on my altar that I actually bought um, – uh, at Samhain from uh, New Aeon this year, you were ah. just it was just starting to put them out, and I, you know, so I went and got one. But how right. many years now has that statue been out and has been available? Because I know I've seen it before. At uh, twenty years. Yep. Yeah. It's, it's, it's came, I, I came out in. Um, uh, well, the very first complete finished prototype was presented at our Beltane Festival of 1998, and so that's when she. And then we, uh, we, uh, Morning Glory had to take a trip to China to find a factory that could do the reproduction and take her with her because we didn't want to trust it to be shipped because it was the only master. I'd spent two years on it, you know. That's a whole story itself. Her journey to China. Incredible adventures. She was there like two months, and um, so the production pieces became available. I think in the fall of '98 uh, or maybe the spring of '99, something like that. Right in there. Wow. Well, I want to. I want to um, offline when we're when we're off of the um, show. I'd like to get the contact information from you because I'd like to bring. Uh, some of the statues into my shop. Uh, it's, a, oh, you know, it's a small little metaphysical shop in in Branchville, and uh, mm-hmm. but uh, you know I, I love to put things in that are unique and you know that have a history. And so your your statues, um, you know, they have soul, and I, I think that's mm. sometimes what's missing from the merchandise today. You know, it's so. It's so mass produced and it's so quickly done and um you know, there's there's just no quality to it. So I like to pick mm. pieces that, like I said, have some history and some some integrity. So I'll I'll grab that oh. information from you at the end of the show. Great. Great. Well, and people who are interested in getting my stuff can uh Google Mythic Images, my distributor for uh, my primary distributor is the Guiding Tree, and they're. Um, but if you if you just look up uh, Mythic Images statues, Oberon Zell statues, something, they, the Guiding Tree should come up with all the contact information. You can go there oh. and and order what you want. That's great. Thank you so much. So let's mm-hmm. talk a little bit about Green Egg. 
Okay. So, you know, you've always been writing, sharing, networking, communicating. Um, and when I I did ask for your, you know, a little bit of your bio earlier. And so you say that the, the present is, is Green Egg back in publication? Oh yeah, it's online. You have to. Um, it's it's now an online easing. Uh, you can order a uh, downloadable print copy if you want to. But the collapse of the distribution industry, which was rather devastating, pretty much wiped out many small press publications. When the big distributors all just went belly up simultaneously and didn't pay anybody for the thousands and thousands of dollars of stuff that they owed, it was pretty disastrous. And we we had a hard time surviving that. Uh, so we had a few years that we weren't publishing. And then we got back into publication for a number of years. But again, the closure of bookstores and the inaccessibility of that and the shifting of people's attention to online publishing um, uh, just we said, well, you know, maybe the best way to do this is to graduate to another whole medium. So now it's a, it's a website that uh, has issues come out that way. So it's it's some um, Green Egg uh, Easing, I think it's it is is the website. But it's still okay. going. It's still going. It's the longest p- continuous publication, or l- the lar- longest number of issues ever of any pagan publication from from uh, uh, March 21st from Spring Equinox of 1968 up till now. There have been a few gaps in the continuity, but there's still more issues south than anything ever. I'm very proud of that. Wow. And, of course, we won more awards and more recognition and more, you know, praises in various publications and books. I'm, I'm really very proud of Green Egg because it was the vision of that was to create something that would create community. And I think it really did that very successfully. And what's your involvement with that? Are you still writing articles and, and participating in all of that piece of there? Well, not really so much now. Um, and I probably should be sending more stuff in. I've I've put in so much stuff that when I started writing books, my, my attention came to focus more on that instead of just writing articles. And now I'm doing blogging and stuff, and that takes up my energy. And these days, it's 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 really kind of um, problematic for me because, you know, by the time I get through all my email and all my Facebook messages and all the text messages on my phone. And and try to catch up a little bit with my journaling and and write some lengthy responses to the questions that I get asked and do a few interviews. <clears throat> the day's over and I haven't done any original writing, and it's it's really a problem, you know. Uh, when I wrote yeah. my first book, um, you know, uh, I was able to do it in peace and quiet. I didn't have anything else going on, but once the book came out, then everybody wanted to contact me and line me up for interviews and talk to me and send me messages and ask me questions. And that took up more and more of the time. And these days that sort of stuff takes up almost all my time, but I'm not really complaining because, you know, my work is always to be out there in communication. So I'm, I'm happy to let the the other publications and green egg uh, continue on forward because, you know, I started the ball rolling on so many things. I'm happy to see other people continue pushing it along. It doesn't have to be me because i got other work to do, other ideas, other assignments. Yeah. That's, that's a very good way to look at it. And, you know, I mean, I think that's the downside to social media, right, is that um, 
it is somewhat intrusive of our time because there's, you know, there's such an expectation for instant gratification today that wasn't there oh, years ago. And, you know, so you had to wait. You know, you waited for your issue to come in the mail. You, you know, you had mm-hmm. faith that it was going to come in the mail whenever, you know, that particular publication was scheduled to come once a month or quarterly or what have you. And that was mm-hmm. okay. But now, mm-hmm. you know, with the social media, because, you know, I run into this with the shop and I do, um, I have an Instagram page also and, you know, I try and put out little motivational blurbs with original photographs. Um, you know, in some weeks I can, some weeks I can do that three or four times, and other weeks I just can't. Um, but as a as a culture, we, you know, we're so quick to move on to you know somebody who is able to do that, and so you're. I feel uh-huh. like I'm always caught in this this you know sin where I don't want to lose followers, I don't want to lose you know. Um, the attention that I've gotten, you know, the grounds that that I've gotten, but it it does get somewhat intrusive and it does take you away from those longer range projects that you're trying to work on. Well, it really does, um, and um, I'm not quite sure entirely how to deal with that because, uh, you know, to write a book requires being able to sit down with no intrusion and just work on it to keep your thoughts going over spanning chapter after chapter and stuff. You know, and it's just not the same thing. People keep wanting me to to get on Instagram and take little videos and put them out and tweet and stuff, and I just don't have time. I've done a few, but I've so I've got other people keeping up my Instagram stuff and sending out little messages and stuff, but I just I just can't keep up with it. It's too much, you know. At some point, yeah, I, I, I've got work to do. You know, and that isn't it. That's not what I get paid for, actually. You know, I get paid for writing books, and I need to be doing that, really. So it is an interesting dilemma when you get so popular (laughs) that everybody wants a piece of you, and then you don't have any time to actually create anything. Right. And, you know, and the other piece of that, too, is that, you know, we're we're creating a a culture of sound bites, you know. Right. People aren't people aren't reading books because they're reading these little snippets and they want to be continually entertained by something that's new and fresh and you know quite honestly simplified for them so that they feel like they've got you know all the content that they need within you know a couple of sentences or a paragraph and then they can move on. Oh, I know. But, we used you know, to. Uh... I mean, I don't know what's happened to people. People must still be reading books because things like the Harry Potter books have been very successful. But uh, it does seem that, that so many people these days have the attention span of a gnat. You know? yeah. And anything's yeah. longer than a page, they just don't have time for it. Yeah, and, and, and it, it kind of forces your your hand with your own creativity because to your point, you know, Llewellyn is saying, you know, you have to... You have to cut this. You have to cut that. You have to cut the other thing. Is you know, it, it becomes you know like we're living in a world of haiku where you can't have more than seven words, and or people aren't going to buy it. And, um, right, that's right. The haiku is that's a good metaphor. You know, that's pretty much yeah. what the tweets and Instagram stuff is all about. It's at that level. 
you know, and I just, I don't know, it doesn't interest me so much to do that, to send out little nifty little sound bites. I want to write books that develop ideas into depth like the ones I've already written. Right. Um, even with the, the Wizard and the Witch book that you're enjoying, um, the uh, Llewellyn cut half of the original manuscript. They, in the, it was a little epilogue in which they sort of apologized for that, but... You know, I would have been happy if they'd made two books or just made a bigger book because there are bigger books. You know, I mean, look at the sure. Harry Potter books. Books were like 900 sure. pages at the end. So, you know, that, and people yeah. bought them. So I don't quite understand their attitude that, well, we'll just, you know, cut the book in half and that'll be okay for people. It's kind of an insult to the readers, I think. But, you know, <laughs> I guess well, a different attitude I, there. I, You know, and I, I think it, it calls for the, you know, what's next you know you i think i mean i'm at a point now where i'm almost done and um you know i say that kind of sadly because when i get to that point in the book where there's you know there's less than an inch worth of pages left and i know that i'm it's going to be wrapping itself up soon and it's going to be over if i've really gotten involved in the book i i start you know i start a grieving process i start feeling very sad knowing that you know that my relationship is going to be coming to an end and all of these, all of these folks that have been, you know, entertaining and, and basically, you know, filling my head for however long it took me to read that book, they're going to be going soon. Like, you know, we have house well, I, know, they pack I, up I feel leave. that way. Exactly. I had that argument with well, and the, the current book I've got with them on death. They want me to cut half of it out. So I'm kind of, well, damn, but I think, what I'll do is I'll just cut out material that will be make another book out of it. Right. And as far as the Wizard right. and the Witch book, I'm, I'm thinking what I'd like to do is take the original full manuscript, which is 33 chapters, and put them out as a, a series, a blog series, so people could read the whole thing online and see what it was they missed, you know, sort of the extended version, you know. So well, that that'd be, be nice. Cool. Yeah, that'd be really yeah. cool. I can put in the additional photographs that there wasn't room for. and So I'm, that's kind of what I have in mind for that. But again, that takes time, and I haven't really, I don't really have the time right now. I'm hoping in February things will be a little slower. These October and my travels and um, all have been pretty intense. But I'll be back here in Salem for the month of February pretty much, and I'm planning on trying to make something of a writer's retreat out of that, you know, and just not do a lot of other stuff, but work on the book project, which I have to do. It's, I mean, it's, it's funny, but I, you know, you're, you don't seem to spend a lot of downtime. Downtime. You know? What is that? <laughs> right. I mean, you know, you're, you're saying you hope things slow down, but I, I mean, you're in your 76th year. Yeah. Has it started to slow down yet? Well, no. If anything, it seems to be picking up. <laughs> but I guess there's a certain momentum, you know, when you get to be uh, past a certain age on that, and you're if you got you figure you got fewer years ahead of you than you do behind mm. you. Um, it's sort of like being on the downslide side of the roller coaster, you know. Things seem to pick up speed, really, rather than slow down. I've I've had some interesting thoughts about time and how it works. One of the interesting conclusions I've got is what old means. Old means 10 years older than you are. Whatever yeah. age you are, old is 10 years yeah. older. If you, when, when you're 20, 30 is old. 
you know, when you're right. when you're 30, 40 years old. Well, and so I'm now looking at, well, you know, 86 will be old. But when I'm 86, it probably won't. My father lived to 96, and I don't think he thought wow. of himself as old. He thought 106 would be old. <laughs> well, and I, and I have to tell you, I mean, my... my my mundane job, if you will, during the week, I um, I work in a hospital and I manage the uh, the social work and case management department in a, in a hospital. And you know, I've been there for 27 years. And 27 mm-hmm. years ago, you know, if we had a patient that came into the hospital from home, um, living independently at the age of 80, you know, we would just all sit around and go. Wow, you know, look at this person is amazing. Now we see people coming in and they're actually still driving and they're 103 and 106 years old and I mean right. everything just it, it it's just so different now than what it was and you know 80 is today really what 60 used to be and um mm-hmm. you're right I think the target just keeps moving. Yeah, well, I'm all for that. As long as the goalposts keep on moving, you know, then I'm I'm not having to worry yeah, okay. about the finish line yet. Right, but, right. But the one thing that does happen at a certain point in your life is you start thinking more about your legacy. You know, right. what is it that you leave behind? What is it you'll be remembered for and stuff like that? So I, I think about that stuff sometimes. And, of course, there's an old joke that says, <clears throat> when you get old, you think about the hereafter a lot. You walk into a room and you say, what did I come in here after? <laughs> <laughs> I'm not quite yeah, that bad. Yeah, yeah. I, I could, I'm, you know, <laughs> I, I have moments like that, and and you know, I think the other thing of it is Oberon, because like you, I, I very rarely sit in one spot doing one thing for very long, and so I have all these hats, and I seem to have had enough room on my head for all those hats. You know, I have my hmm. my professional. Um, career at the hospital I am also um, a private uh, therapist so I do private counseling on the side Um, I have my you know my beloved amber dragon metaphysical shop um, on the weekends and then there's all the fellowship work and you know coordinating Uh, we do meditation circles every other Thursday night and we do drum circles and we do Full moons, and we just did a um, a passion play for Yule, where we had a um, our, we did uh, the Holly King and the Oak King this year were estranged brothers, and um, mm. you know, in order to save his kingdom um, from despair, the Holly King had to go out and reconcile with his mm. brother Oak and kind of bring him back into the oh, kingdom I that. to. Yeah, you know, it worked out really well. well that's and, wonderful. Um, that's that's great. That's the sort of stuff that we that we do in the Church of All Worlds and Home kind of things. Is these mystery plays for the different Sabbaths and stuff. Well, girl, you got you got just as much going on as I do. In fact, a whole lot more. It sounds like right now because you know I'm I'm not, nothing like that busy at the moment. You know, well, <laughs> you're amazing. Well, thank you, but I you know I I feel the I feel that churn like you know if I if Am I going to have enough time to get to all the projects that are still in my head? You know, the stuff right. I haven't even dared to speak out loud. So I'm sure that right. if that's going on for, for me, it must be going on for you as well. So, 
You know, oh, what are some is. of those yeah. projects? Like, what you know, what is your legacy? What would you like to kind of get out into the world that hasn't peaked out yet? Well, mostly um, what I still want to get done is gotten down to more books to write. I've got this whole list of books that I have kind of I've been kind of working on over the years, ideas, so then I've taken notes and I keep folders of things that go into it. Uh, probably the most important one that I really want to do is the Gaia book, um, which I should have done 40 years ago. Uh, the Gaia Genesis, Conception and Birth of the Living Earth. And it would be the whole story of the Gaia vision uh, from a more of a pagan and biological perspective rather than the perspectives that this stuff is written about most places. And um, and I've got illustrations for that that I've been working on and stuff. And my notes are that this, geez, I mean, when I first came up with this back in the 1970, I wrote quite a few articles, fairly well-developed for Green Egg. And they were reprinted lots of places and caught a lot of attention. In fact, huge, galvanized the whole pagan community. Margot Adler talks a lot about that in Drawing Down the Moon and the impact that that had. And you read about it in The Wizard and the Witch, too. But I never really got around to writing the book about it. So I, I really want to put all that together. So that's one of them. And New Page has been after me to do a um, journeyman grimoire, to be a follow-up to the apprentice grimoire. So I really need to do that. But that's kind of tricky because you get to that point and there's just an awful lot of information. So I've got to figure out what I can put in here um, then can primarily reference to other stuff. And I think I'm going to focus a lot on quantum theory and magic uh, at the grimoire, at the, at the journeyman level and correspondences and things like that. Useful stuff for a journeyman to have. And then uh, I've got others. I want to do a uh, um, wizard's guide to girls for teenage boys and a wizard's guide to women for grown men because... Um, I've had a bit of experience in this department that um, I think a lot of guys really could use. And I think a lot of women would really like it if some of these guys knew some of the stuff that I would like to tell them. You know, mm-hmm. So there's that. Um, mm-hmm. There's one that I collected a huge amount of information for, and all I really do need to do is to edit it and, and introduce it. But all the material is already there, and it's called um, Goodbye, Jesus, I've Gone Home to Mother. And these oh, are stories wow. by Christian clergy who have come over to paganism and found the goddess. Wow. And their stories are amazing. And I've got a lot of them. So that's a book. Um, oh, Oberon, that is, that's exciting. That's a really uh, exciting oh, yeah. topic for me. I, I would love to, to hear more about that. So now when you talk I know, about I've your just notes, gotta do these. Well, when you talk about your notes and your files now, are you still kicking it old school? Are we talking about like pen and paper and actual notes and files, or have you have you moved on and you're computerized now? Oh, yeah. I'm all computerized with that stuff. Um, I have. Uh, so I have been busy enough that my notes are all um, uh, electronic, so I'm good with that. And, nice. and all my art is in Photoshop and stuff like that now. I'm so, trying to keep you up. Were, you know, I mean, I always have sort of had a well, but, future of information right, but you were, I mean, with science fiction you and were all. Also, so. You were also a pioneer with the whole computer movement. I mean, you worked for um, one of the early computer companies, correct? 
I did a desktop publishing. I was in the very beginning of the desktop publishing with the Macintosh 512, where I really got caught on out to it. And the Green Egg, when we started republishing it in 1988, was the first uh, journal to be published on in PageMaker. It really made it dramatic and spectacular and gorgeous. Other people were still using, you know, dot matrix prints on. I don't even know what they were using, Ataris or something, you know, but. So that would helped a lot to get Green Egg launched. Um, mm. And my in my books, the first several books I did, all the books I've done for New Page, not the ones for Llewellyn, but for New Page, I handed them a uh, completed uh, disc that went straight to the printer. Did the whole wow. thing, the layout, the artwork, the, wow. the the everything. That's why the text sort of flows around the pictures like that. You know, I couldn't just send a manuscript off but Llewellyn doesn't work that way so with them I just have to send them the text and I'm not entirely happy with what they do with it I think that they make the page margins too wide and the spacing too wide and the font too big and and they don't take up enough you know they take too many pages to have too little information and I would make it a lot Mm. denser if I had my druthers but that's the arrangement with them, and I wanted to do a couple of things with uh, with them. But I really liked working with New Page better because they just gave me a lot more freedom to do what I wanted. And and freedom to do what you want is really, I think that's one of the cornerstones of your legacy. And 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 I and I don't mean that flip. I you know I think that freedom to do the to do what you want is, I think, what's allowed you to create the community where people feel so included and so involved because there's, you know, you talk about the no judgment zone and I think everything that you've done in your life has ever, you know, been about defending exactly that, you know, that, you know, community needs to be a safe place for all of its members, not just um, a few select chosen members and I think that's I think that's your legacy as well well I'm glad to, to have that one the the idea of an inclusive kind of a community has always been important to me um, you know uh, being one of those kind of kids who didn't get invited to the cool kids parties kind of stuff and being sort of an outsider and kind of developing a community of people who sort of felt that way at least all of us who came from the first generation to me, it's been very important to create the most inclusive possible sort of a thing. It's one of the appeals of the idea of the church of all worlds is that everybody's welcome. You know, um, we've been <laughs> lately within that, interestingly enough, we've been trying to update our um, uh, non-discrimination clause and to be more and more inclusive. And kept, people are kept saying, oh, you got to add in this and add in that, and we include these, and we include this kind of people and these kind of people and everybody. And it got to be ridiculous. We were getting down to, well, you know, we really don't care whether people prefer cats or dogs, you know. I mean, we're, everybody is welcome. And finally, after having this long discussion, we finally got around to saying, look, can't we just say everybody's welcome? You know, <laughs> that's good right. enough for everybody. It's not like we have to list every possible category of people because there's always going to be somebody who says, well, I'm a flying purple people eater, and I didn't see anything here that and says you include flying purple right. people eaters. So 
I'm feeling right. discriminated against. I'm going, no, 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 no. You're welcome to, yes. But we can't just keep adding in flying purple people eaters all over because it just gets to be ridiculous. So we finally got it down to, look, just everybody's welcome, okay? <laughs> all inclusive. And I, and, That's what this is all and about. I think that, and the difference is, you know, when you say all are welcome, I mean, you see that on signs in pretty much every faith community that all are welcome, yeah. but are they, but yeah. are they really, you know, versus, you know, the church of all worlds where it really is a, an open door. I mean, I, I remember struggling as a, as a teenager. Well, the struggle was, you know, my mom and I just didn't really see eye to eye about a lot of things. And um, so I used to keep a journal. I still do. Uh, and the journal was really that place where I would, um, you know, talk about the the things that I wasn't going to be angry about out in the world because I really believe in the power mm. of words. And once it's out there, you can't take it back. I mean, even if you say you're sorry, it's still it's still there. So, you know, I I always chose to use the journal as my private space to really do that kind of stuff mm-hmm. rather than to react verbally. And so, you know, my my mom had found my journal at one point and decided that. You know, I needed a, I needed a, a dose of Catholicism. So, she arranged for for me to go and talk to her priest. And mm. I remember that, you know, um, I was I have to be wearing shorts. And you know, for me, shorts meant you know like one inch above the knee. I, I really wasn't a short short person. And so, you know, we show up to have this conversation with the priest and. Um, he he looks at my shorts and he says to me, "Oh, you you can't come into the chapel." And I hmm. I looked at him and I said, "I said, well, why not?" He said, "Well, you're wearing shorts." And I said to him, "Well, well what if I die naked? Then what right. happens?" And you know pr- that was pretty much the end of the cleansing. But um, you know, but it's that kind of thing. So you know, if you're going to say that everyone is welcome then you actually have to welcome everyone, you know, and not have some fine print at the bottom that, that predetermines what, you know, everyone really constitutes. And so I, I think that that's really the difference. And so I'm kind of glad to hear. So you, you are back involved with the Church of All Worlds? Well, I've never not been involved with the Church of All Worlds. Um, but uh, there have been times when my focus has been uh you know, uh, primarily somewhere else while other people carried it on. When we were doing all the unicorn adventure, that pretty much took up all the energy. But it wasn't, we were still doing Church of All Worlds stuff, but uh, not quite to the level of public stuff. I mean, like we weren't publishing Green Egg, for example, during that period. But I still remain, amazingly enough, after all these years, I still remain the primate of the church. And um, uh, that's. I think that's actually an accomplishment itself. I mean, not a whole lot of people... Uh, who found religions are still alive 55 years later and still, you know, the leader or whatever that means of this thing. I mean, true. that's, that's true. an interesting term in itself. But I am. I'm still now, here. Now, how can people find out information about the Church of All Worlds and, you know, if they're interested in exploring, you know, that as a potential or getting involved in some way? How do they find that over on? Well, the easiest thing is just um, well, I mean, it's, you, you know, there's a Wikipedia page, of course, for me and the church and the school. But but the um, 
uh, website is caw.org, and all the information is there, including the festivals. We have, you know, we have land. We got a 55-acre land up in Northern California, which isn't very helpful if you're not if you're on the East Coast, but it's there, and people do come. Sometimes people come from you know other countries around the world just to show up for Beltane, and we do the whole Wheel of the Year stuff up there, which is wonderful. And um, we have lots of activities and, and nests, which we don't have nearly as many currently as we have in our heyday, but I'm hoping that we'll be having a lot more. In a sense, we're still in a kind of a resurrection phase. The, the church has had periods of expansion and periods of retraction, and we're you know, we're we're kind of in a, the early phases of an expansion period right now. So, but we've always been there, and we always welcome everybody, and we have a very diverse community. Uh, it's um, you know, it's it's really wonderful. I think it's I'm very proud of it. You know, because the whole point is that everybody should be welcome. Uh, we always have had a hospitality suite at the Pantheon Festival in San Jose every February over President's weekend and we will be doing that again this year i won't be there this year for the first time because i'm going to be out here in salem but other folks will carry it on we've got um uh active new clergy coming in uh, new ordinations and ministers and priestesses it's very exciting and i'm very proud for example that this the church of all worlds was the first legal church to legally ordain women as priestesses in millennia, which I think is a really wonderful thing because, you know, other churches were having women ministers and women rabbis and even women priests and a few, but only pagan churches had priestesses and we were the first to do that. So that's, that's a wonderful thing. But, you know, all of the kinds of diversity too, geez, whatever people are coming up with, you know, we've, we've had, I mean, you know, at all levels, I mean, you know, through the church, we just simply, don't have any uh, sense of discrimination at all, except for assholes. You know, that's all the only kind of people we don't welcome are assholes. Otherwise, everybody's welcome. <laughs> and, and I guess, and that could be a very broad category. So I guess, you know, there's, there's, you know, there's always uh, an opportunity. They're going to show themselves, and you'll, you'll know. But sometimes they do creep in, and you have to weed them out. It's um, definitely. I know it's kind of sometimes. funny. It really is funny because people we do want will often say, well, I'm not sure if I would be welcome. We have to assure them, mm-hmm. yes, you would be welcome. But somehow, even though we really don't actually want the the, the, the real assholes, somehow some of them manage to find their way in anyway. Mm-hmm. Party crashers, mm-hmm. I guess. So that's, well, that's you know, just sort of an amusing little sideline. <laughs> well, and it's it's the same, you know, when you do circles and when you do, um, you know, we do a lot of open public um, circles at, at the Amber Dragon and we just did our like I said we just did our Yule um, passion play on Saturday night and it's always very exciting on one level when you have new people that are joining you for the first time but then there's always that you know you you have to be so much more mindful of the energy and the flow and and until you can figure out you know what they're doing there and you know what they're really mm-hmm. hoping to gain from it and uh so I, you know, I've been fairly lucky with um, with the groups that I've had, probably because we're small and we're word of, mostly word of mouth, and we're in this tiny little bucolic town, you know, um, like a little Mayberry RSD kind of a place, mm-hmm. and 
So um, you, you really have to have the desire to travel there to participate mm-hmm. in these circles because, you know, it's not someplace that's literally on the map. So, you know, I think right. that that's good. But but you've you've been involved in some, I mean, all of the big pagan festivals and all of the big circles. Um, mm-hmm. What's your... What's your favorite? You know, when you when you think back, what, what which one did you really enjoy mm. the most? Well, um, that's that's an interesting question. Uh, certainly, I've enjoyed individually pretty much every festival and gathering I've gone to. Um, there, there have been a few that that just didn't quite make it for various reasons, like the they didn't have decent food, for example. That's always a bad one. If somebody, yeah. if if people are complaining about the food, you know, that's a disaster. But yep. I've only yep. had a couple of those kind of things. Uh, the ones at um, Heartland in, in Kansas City have been wonderful. The uh, CMA stuff in Texas are great. The Pagan Unity Festival in Tennessee is wonderful. But my, I guess my real favorite is the one that's sort of become my home festival, and that's Starwood, because this will be the 89th, no, that can't be right, that's not right, sorry, not 89th, sorry, the 39th Starwood is this coming summer. Wow. And I, I will have been to at least 35 of them by this summer. Uh, I've been a regular forever. And I've seen whole generations come up, and everybody knows me, and I know well as many people as I keep track of, which is a lot. Um, and it's wonderful, wonderful festival. There's all kinds of stuff going on. There's there's constant music and big bands and big name presenters. Many many of the the major figures that I've met in um, the movement. I've met at uh, Starwood people like Tim Leary and Terrence McKenna, you know, for, and Stephen Gaskin. Actually, we met at Starwood, you know, <laughs> of all the places to meet. So it's been a great way to get to know some of the real movers and shakers in the counterculture, and um, and I just love it. And it culminates with a great big, huge house-sized bonfire on Saturday night. Wow! That uh, wow. that is awesome. And it's um, clothing optional festival, so you've got a lot of people whose primary adornment is, um, you know, body paint and tattoos, which is very entertaining. It's it's just a wonderful gathering. Lots of vendors, uh, you know, uh, old friends getting together, campfires and stuff going on in the evenings, uh, which is my favorite part. My favorite part is after the official daytime workshops and presentations are all done is to spend the evening just going around to the different campfires and just hanging out with folks. And, you know, and I, I usually go walking around in the evening in, in my, you know, cloak and, and, and Gandalf hat and glowing staff and mm-hmm. stuff. And I'll come out of the darkness and into a circle and people say, Oh, it's Oberon. Come on in and have a seat. You know, you know, here, have, have, have a drink here, have a pipe, you know, and it's great. It's wonderful. And we sit and we talk and we share stuff and, after a while, I go on to the next one, and that's how I spend my evenings. So I'm very, I really love that. Well, See, it, I mean, it, the whole point of my amazing. life. Had, well, the the point of my life had always been to find my people, you know. And so for me, going to a festival and a gathering, I don't want to just come and give a talk and then go hang out with the other speakers, which some speakers do. You know, I want to hang out with the people there. That's why I'm there. It's to me the whole thing of getting paid to come and talk to a festival is simply a way that I can actually get to hang out with my peeps. So I love that. 
Well, you are certainly very good at, at really creating community wherever you go. And I, I think that that's, I mean, we, we saw it just in the, um, you know, the circle at Samhain. You know, you just were mm-hmm. very good at rallying people and, and kind of creating that space for people to, to be able to get close and talk to you and, and have those intimate moments. And I think that's what's different, you know, a lot of times. And, and I know you don't think you're popular in the mundane world, but, you know, there is a level of familiarity and, and people might not know exactly who you are when you're out walking around, but people have a sense that you are someone, you know, if that mm. makes sense. Um, (laughs) you know like I I might not you know that guy looks so familiar I don't know who he is but he just looks like he must be somebody important it's just the way you carry yourself you know when you walk through the world and uh, it's not pretentious it's it's just it's authentic it's just who you are you know Um, you're on a mission it's very clear you are truly you know one of the first indigos right and uh you're on a mission and you are fulfilling that mission. I just think it's so cool. So if if people are having like, you know, any kind of thoughts as they're as they're listening to this conversation tonight and they're thinking, you know, oh that that might be me. I, I might I might like to, you know, to try a vision quest. I, I might like to, you know, walk this path a little bit. What would you recommend? I mean, to to young people starting out today what would you recommend they do to, to begin? Where should they begin? Well, that's a good question. Uh, but I think that uh, the parts that have probably been the best and most formative for me have been getting out into the woods, you know, going camping. You know, I was a Boy Scout when I was a kid, so I got all the camping craft skills, and I put a lot of that kind of information in the grimoire because I think that going out into the country and into the woods uh, and having vision quests is, is is really crucial to it. You know, get some time off by yourself, get away from the keyboard, you know, close the, close the lid on your computer, you know, you know, res out of World of Warcraft or whatever, you know, and just go out there. Um, going to pagan festivals is fabulous. I really recommend that to anybody. I mean, they're all over the place now and they're all wonderful. Uh, so wherever you are in the country, there's bound to be some pagan festival you can get to fairly easily. I would certainly recommend that and just meet other people and connect with them and hang out and, and talk and stuff. Um, have a boundless curiosity about stuff. Ask questions. You know, Get excited about wanting to know cool stuff because, man, there's people out here who know amazing cool stuff. You know, I know a fair bit of it myself, but I also know people who know a whole lot more than I do about some of the things that are their particular passions. So if you have a passion, you know, find somebody out there who shares it and can take you further on it and talk to them. Um, that's Those are all good things. And then just, just do it, you know, just just do it. <laughs> that's, I guess that's a motto of and stuff, but I really, I really do feel that. For me, a good part of my life has been I, I look at the world and I, See, well, there's a there's a void here. There's a thing that ought to be here, and I would like to have this thing here. So if it isn't there already, then I feel well. I guess that's something I have to create. So then I do, and then it's there. <laughs> you know, like the Church of All Worlds, at, the Day School of Wizardry, right. or Green Egg, or Unicorns, oh. or the Millennial Gaia. But I've often felt that I get these 
I get these kind of astral phone calls from you know that say, this is the goddess speaking, and your next assignment, should you choose to accept it, is to do some crazy ass thing, and um, and see the thing is you can't say no to that because then they just cancel your show. You got to go with it. You got to say okay. Right. Where do you want me to go? What do you want me to do? I'm yours. You know. Well, and I think that that's, I think it's very true, you know. I mean, we do a very, very small in comparison to the to the festivals and all that you're talking about. But, you know, we do a, a bell pane every year with a full-size maypole outside mm-hmm. of the shop. Mm-hmm. And um, it's just such a wonderful way to, you know, we're constantly introducing the community to concepts that are, you know, just slightly different, but really not, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So it's, you know, when we talk about the, you know, the, the concept of, of the pagan community, it, it really is mm-hmm. just community, but, but this is the way we do it. And so it, it's labeled that way. So, you know, everything mm-hmm. that we do out of the shop, we, we try and do it, you know, in the nature of, you know, educating and sharing the word and, and opening the doors so that, you know, we don't have to label it for people and, and you don't have to label yourself as a something um, mm-hmm. to come to the Amber Dragon and participate. And I think I think that when I read your, when I've read the book, it seems like that that's a concept that you live by also, that there's no, mm-hmm. there is no one definition that, defines a community beyond the word inclusion. Mm-hmm. And that is so important. It really is. And, um, you know, it, it's interesting over the time to see new kind of uh, communities of people emerging. The, the, the current big thing that's, 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 that's happening at this particular time, I'm sure you know, is the whole transsexual phenomenon. This sure, is becoming a sure. big thing. And and again, I think that our pagan community is, uh, with its vision of inclusion, uh, is a is a place where people can find welcome who probably have a hard time finding welcome in very many other places. But we're you know glad to have everybody come on in. You know, yeah, here. yeah. And I, and I, I, I like that. A, I like being able to offer that hospitality. You know. Yeah, I had a beautiful experience in my shop some months ago where. Um, uh, a couple had come in and actually was was one of their first dates. Um, they were up in our neck of the woods and decided to stop into the shop. And, you know, so they shopped and they bought some crystals or what have you. And so they came back almost a year later and um, one of the, the partners had decided that this this visit to the Amber Dragon, she was going to propose. Um, and so here we are, we're standing, you know, my, my shop is probably the same size as gypsies. It's it's just a small, you know, cozy little space. And it was the two of them and me standing behind the counter. And at the same moment, you know, um, you know, this girl goes down on one knee and I'm behind the register going, Oh oh my God, I probably shouldn't be here. I shouldn't be standing here. And, you know, and, and the young woman who's getting proposed to is going, oh, my God, I can't believe this is happening. And it, it was just so beautiful. <laughs> and that, oh, you know, she that's had, so sweet. Well, she had consciously picked the shop 
because it was the place where they they both felt this spark for the first time and realized that this was not going to be a casual thing between them and you know and I think that that's really what you're describing is is a place where everybody yeah. literally can just feel like they're at home yeah. yes exactly I mean, that's exactly the atmosphere that we're, we've always tried to create in CIW, and I, and I hope that, and I do see it throughout the wider pagan community. Oh, there are, there are a few groups here and there that are very exclusivist for various reasons, and that's okay. They can do their own thing, but it's wonderful to see the extent to which most are very, very open to just, you know, um, our actual official statement that we are that we are coming up with is basically we. We welcome everyone and include everyone of goodwill, all people of goodwill. I think that's the kind of language we're working with there because that's the whole idea. It's, and that's a good part of what Morning Glory and I did in our own developing of community was just throwing parties. We just throw really awesome parties and people would come and then people would invite other people. People would invite their friends or their loved ones, you know. And and so the the party kind of grew and there wasn't any labels. We didn't say, well, this party is for even for pagans only. It was just we threw a party. Our our most popular one was the annual Adams Family Reunion. And the whole idea of the Adams Family thing is, well, no matter how weird you are, if you say you're an Adams, you're in. You know? Right. <laughs> that, that was kind of the idea. And and that's kind of the way we've just always tried to think and be with that because that's what we like. We like to have a really diverse community of folks to hang out with. It would be very dull if everybody was the same. That is the truth, and it, it's it just it's very joyful and it's very fun. And and I I think one of the things that amazes me because you know we we didn't even get in we we don't even have time right now to to go into the whole. Um, you know, the polyamory thing, and, and I'd love oh, to right, obviously yes. have you on as a, as a guest again on the show, but, I mean, the fact that, you know, you lived and created these very intimate communities of very diverse folks that, you know, they themselves were, were trying to figure out why they were there while they were there. You know, everybody was kind of coming into this and, and you know, learning about themselves and learning about the concepts of the the group at the same time. And yet, for the most part, you really manage to avoid a significant amount of drama. I mean, you think about the relationships that people are in today, and they can't even pull off a monogamous relationship without so much drama that they're, you know, they're in therapy before they're even together six months, this kind of stuff. And yet, you know... you managed to create this beautiful community where um, people just kind of went with the flow. You know, I just think a lot of lessons there for us. Well, I, I do feel that our um, uh, when Morning Glory and I really came out into the world about the whole polyamory stuff, which we really hadn't thought about. I mean, we'd always been poly in our own lives, and we'd always had lots of lovers, and that was part of our thing when we got together is, well, this is really great. Here we are together, and we can bring all of our lovers around, you know, and we'd travel, and we'd meet somebody at a festival or a gathering, and we'd end up having a really wonderful connection with them. We'd want to bring them home and say, hey, look what I found. I brought, look who I brought home. You know, you check, check this person out. And eventually, for half of the 40 years 
that Morning Glory and I had together, for half of that time, we were in group marriages. We were in two very wonderful, really great group marriages, which, which were still very close with the people. But, you know, lives and circumstances have dispersed us over time, but we still have those familial connections of the time we, we shared. And those are wonderful. We raised kids, you know, and, and did our businesses and stuff, the Green Egg with Diane and Mythic Images with Wolf and Winter and Liza and the Sacred Connections and and um, all the stuff. And it, it was wonderful to have uh, a network of people who were that close and connected on that familial basis. It was awesome. And we and it always worked for us. We really didn't have uh, a whole lot of problems. So, you know, there would be an occasional thing, but it was it was small because it was a supportive family. It was just a family, and and our network and family is is all over the place because we met so many people around the country. So, on my current travels, in um, I'm, I'm trying to connect up with as many of the, you know, I don't even say ex-lovers, of the lovers of my life that I've, I've known over, over all these decades as they're still around. And that's been really wonderful and really sweet. So well, yeah, it works, it it works fine. Yeah. yeah. And it says a lot about you that, you know, you're able to come through relationships and maintain the core of that relationship. So even if sexually the relationship changes and people evolve and they move on to other things, the fact that you're still able to, you know, be friends, to be um, intimate on another level, I think that really does mm-hmm. speak to the fact that, you know, it it truly was what it was. It was an expansion of of uh, loving relationships and not um, opportunistic relationships. You know, I think that's mm. the difference. I think you're right. When you're still when you're still feeling very close and loving to somebody, decades later down the line, even though you're actually aren't even actually even living together, or still actively involved, but you still have the those wonderful, warm, sweet, cozy feelings. You know, um, I think that's a considerable thing to achieve in one's life. Although, again, like so much of Morning Glory in my life, we never really thought of ourselves as being particularly exceptional. We just did what seemed natural, and it it sort of worked. You know, but it wasn't like we were trying to... um, Well, the way way I always phrase it, I said it's... it's, I've I've been more into talking my walk than walking my talk, in that, you know, I, 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 I live my life, I go through things, and then somebody says, well... You know, how do you do that? And I say, oh, well, here, here's... So, but at first I take the right. walk before I, t- I try to talk the talk. Right. And many people will lay out these theoretical platforms and frameworks and say, okay, this is the way it's got to be, and then try to live up to it. And and that often doesn't work when you're actually trying things out in no. practice. They may not come quite the way you planned them. But we don't right. really do that. We never did that. No, I, I think you're you're more like an accidental leader, if you will, you know, that you just, you're, you're natural, you're a natural leader, but that's not your goal. You're not going into things because you're going to gain something personally from this experience. And I think that's the difference. You know, there's no other agenda. It's just, it's just purely what it is. I mean, you, you, you know, you like the concept of the unicorn and then you devoted yourself to, you know, making making it real 
you know, and, mm-hmm. you know, the same thing with the mermaids. I mean, you know, I, I, I really enjoyed that whole section in the book, and I don't want to spoil it for people because I, mm-hmm. I really think that, you know, everyone should go out and get a copy of, uh, you know, The Wizard and the Witch. And, you know, there there are pieces of everybody in this book, and I, and I think that that's what's so great about it. But, um, you know, we all have that friend, right? We all have that person in our lives that, you know, regardless of what's going on around, you know, them says, hey, I've got this great idea. You know, everybody's <laughs> got somebody like that. And yeah. but you actually go out and, and do it. You know, that's the difference. I mean, there's a lot of people that sit around in, you know, in parties and gatherings and say, hey, I've got this really great idea. And then, you know, but you actually, when you say it out loud, I think at that point everybody knew it was already a fait play. You know, that's that's my sense is that, you know, it was batting around inside your skull. You already had a plan in place, and by the time you were uttering it, everybody knew they should just pack their bags because it was an inevitability that that was the next quest. <laughs> well, you know, I think you're right about that. That's amusing. You know, uh, well... It's it's a fascinating kind of a thing all around because we never really thought of ourselves, Morning Glory and I, or set out to be like leaders exactly, like trying to gather followers or tell people what to do or make people's plans for them or anything else. We just kind of just pursued our own interests in a happy-go-lucky kind of way, and 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 you know, folks who you know were into it would join us and hang out, pretty much like throwing a party, and people come to the party because they're having a good time. You know, and, uh, and that's kind of the way we lived our life. At the end of, of Morning Glory's life, in the, in the last months of her life, I had this vision that we had lived our life like, you know, great ships sailing to, off on an adventure. And you're looking ahead and you're steering by the stars and you're looking at the maps of the distant lands and you're going on off on the adventure. But what, you, what we never really thought about, it didn't even pay attention to because we were looking forward, was the wake that was spreading behind right. the ship, you know, right. and we, we, until we finally got to the end of the line, you know, when it came finally into that final port for her and that wave caught up with us and rebounded. And there we were in her final days being supported by an incredible community of love and stuff. And it was just stunningly beautiful those, that final time. I hope um, that another edition of the book will come out that has the epilogue of the uh, final chapter of how she died because it was an amazing, amazing way. But I think I'm going to have that in the book on death so that at least that information uh-huh. will be there because it was, well, it was I, quite and, a cosmic death. Yeah. And, you know, I realized when I started reading the book because I had, I had Googled um, some information and I realized that the book was not going to touch on that. And, um, you know, I, I, I came am out while she was still alive. <laughs> yes, yeah, well, you know, and and I think it's probably just as poignant as, you know, the way you've lived together is the way that you've, you know, that you died together. And um, so I, I am, you know, looking forward to being able to, to share some information about that and, and to read about it because, um, you know, you, you guys are, you transcend flesh, really, is what you do, and um, I just think it would be beautiful to be able to read about that. 
So I know that we are we are running low on time. This this went so fast, um, and I'm I'm looking forward to following your walkabout and uh, you know encourage folks to hop on and and you know follow you and all of the different uh, mediums that you're on so that they can um, actually fall in love with your journey as, as I have. Um, if you find yourself heading towards New Jersey, towards the top of New Jersey, I would love to have you stop into the Amber Dragon and spend some time and share some wisdom with us and uh, the fellowship. And, you know, well, I'll be uh, I happy think that, to that, do that would be a lot of fun. I will be yeah, happy so I, to do that. I will put you on my on my map. Um, I'll be heading that way um, uh, at the beginning of March. And... Um, uh, we'll get in touch and we'll arrange it. I can come down and do a book signing or a talk and hang out and do the thing. That would I'd be wonderful. Be Hercules, uh, um, I would I'm like here. you to be a part of that too. Yeah, so. Oh, awesome. Um, I'd be, I'd be know, greatly honored. Yeah, I mean, well, we never even got, got into, uh, we never even got into talking about, you know, the Elysium work that you did. And so, um, oh, that, obviously, right. I, I would love to have you back on, and um, so I'll reach out to you so we can get, you know, a future date and, you know, focus okay. a little bit more on that, and, and Hercules could also kind of chime in there, too, because that's his, his passion as well. Oh, wonderful. Well, and, and certainly mine. Uh, well, there's so much more we could talk about. It's, I know we've had uh, a longer-than-usual talk here, but it's still all too brief. Yeah, well, I knew it was going to fly. And, it, you know, when you tell people, you know, would you mind being my guest for two hours, and they hear the, that concept of two hours and they think, oh, my God, what am I going to do? But there's just some people that you know are just, they're just going to fly through conversation and two hours is going to go in a blink of an eye. And um, you are definitely one of those folks. And I thank you so much for taking time out um, to, to spend with us this evening. And, um Again, I encourage everybody, and, and Hercules has been posting um, all the links um, to your various um, connections over on. So they're all out there, and so please go on, and you can share that stuff as well. And, um, you know, let's just keep the conversation going. Well, wonderful, and thank you both. I'm, I'm really honored to be on your show, Linda and Hercules, and I look forward to coming back on again because there's still more stuff we could talk about. <laughs> and, and you've been incredibly awesome, and uh, um, you're one of my mythic mentors, so it's a, an honor to hear you speak. Thank you, Linda, for bringing him on. Well, right. and, and thank you for agreeing, and, and you have a, a lovely travel there down uh to uh, New Orleans and uh, safe travels, and I'll be reading about it, I'm sure, on your blog. So, um, oh, good. you know, blessed, blessed be to you and yours, and uh, enjoy the journey. Thank you, and blessed be to you all too, and Merry Christmas too, because that's also yes. happening. Merry Christmas. <laughs> yes, all it right. is. It's, all right. All right. Good night, everybody. Well, good night, guys. Good night, and thanks uh, to those at home who are listening to us uh, on this journey. Um, Happy holidays, whatever your holidays may be. Until next time, this is Hercules Invictus. Thanks for listening to the Spiritual Unity Radio Network. Join us. 
seven nights a week for exciting programming covering a variety of expressions of faith. And remember, all manifestations of the divine are equally valid. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.